0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey Shannon, how are you? Uh,
0: I'm surviving, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's been a while since we've talked because the solar system series was airing and we're actually recording this while that's still airing, of because course. we want to talk about things that are fresh on our minds. Uh,
0: right, exactly. Uh, as as everyone will see, since we're going to talk about computer stuff, we know we're going to have to get it out of my mind, because I'm going to forget about it instantly. So <laughs> <laughs> we have to record this show while it's still uh, fresh on the burner. Um, and you just got back from a pretty exciting trip, too. Yep.
1: Yeah, so just went to Hilo, Hawaii to be part of the intelligence Systems. A geo conference that EarthCube is sponsoring it's a research coordination network or rcn
0: uh do you wish you were there this week when this big hurricane's about to hit or are you well we were
1: supposed to it? get hit while we were there and then yeah. it turned south
0: <laughs> <laughs> and okay, everybody okay.
1: on the island said they always turn south <laughs> yes and then uh, this happened
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's what all the people that i know there i was like oh my gosh and they said as happens all the time and even now um and we're recording this on well, I guess you know we're recording this on Wednesday before this Hurricane Lane hits, and they're all like, "Eh," <laughs> at least my friends yeah. are. <laughs> they but no, think-
1: so we uh, well, we got a little bit of surf, and then uh, unfortunately, so I was planning on taking a doors off helicopter ride over the volcano.
0: Ah, uh, yeah.
1: And 24 hours before I touched down, it just shut off.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you did to anger uh, Pele, but sorry. <laughs> yeah, so
1: I did get, thanks to uh, one of the conference members that was able to get us past some of the roadblocks where public couldn't go. Ah, nice. I got to go back and see the recent flow. I was actually standing up on a scaffolding Uh, taking some pictures of the crater and the flow and he said that when the actual lava river was flowing the previous week and you were standing on that scaffolding you could feel the scaffolding vibrating
0: (gasps) i think i'd be a little bit nervous standing on scaffolding under a lava river over a lava river (laughs) but you know it
1: was uh it was really neat though and you know i've got some pictures of Where the lava had flown over a road, and I've seen that before. I've just seen like a little foot-deep flow or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, This was stories tall.
0: (laughs) Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. I'm so jealous. So jealous.
1: (laughs) So overall, the conference was pretty interesting. We uh, deployed different sensors around the island, so they 3D printed some weather stations. I set up an infrasound sensor and uh, a little FM attenuation system, which... The FM attenuation system got some interesting data. The infrasound got some pretty standard stuff. Mm -hmm. So overall, it was uh, an interesting week. And then, you know, took me a while to get back on my feet when I got here, but had more conferences and more travel. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Gosh, it just never ends, does it? I was going to say, you've probably already forgotten about, you know, beginning of fall semester busyness, but no, apparently you've already been doing it. (laughs)
1: It's been the beginning of fall semester for about the last six months. Yeah, exactly. For me. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> had you been to Hawaii before?
1: Yes, I had, but it was back in two
0: thousand seven. Oh, okay. All right. I still haven't been. I'm real sad. One of our uh, mutual colleagues, mine and John's mutual colleague, just moved there to work for the uh, Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. So, I uh, I don't feel bad for him. That's all I gotta say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: But so you have also been doing some not usual stuff too, right?
0: I have. I, I feel like this is like a confessional. Um, so forgive me because I I took a software carpentry workshop.
1: Oh, good.
0: <laughs> I did. It was a Python workshop too. Yay! <laughs> it was. Um, it was intense. Let me tell you, real intense. Not in a building. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> Wi-Fi is really good at OU. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm
1: very curious to hear about your experience there uh, and yeah. what you walked away with.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this whole show will be John making fun of me. And that's basically what this is going to be about. Um, so oh, not at all. <laughs> I guess I just obviously I wanted to take it because, you know. This seems like a skill that we should have right that no one has and you know you should know how to work with your computers and so I'm like okay I'll do this this will be great it'll be fine oh, and then luckily when we got there well this is not lucky but the first instructor was his first time and it was not good at all but luckily it was only oh, the, no. yeah <laughs> it was only the intro to the shell. So we were working with a Bash shell, and it was only the intro to the shell. And I worked at the Severe Storms Laboratory ages ago, so I knew Linux, uh, Unix systems a little bit. So thank God, or else it would have been totally worthless. <laughs> I wouldn't have done oh, no. anything, yeah, uh, what was happening. So that part was bad, but I was in the room with a bunch of meteorology grad students who also already knew a little bit of Unix, so it was not, it was not a loss for the workshop, let me say. <laughs>
1: So, in software carpentry, they're required to do Unix. They're required to do, or at least when I took the the instructor training a long time ago, uh, you're required to do that, and you had to do some kind of version control system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the rest was up to what you wanted to focus the workshop on. So, right. what version control did you do?
0: I don't even know what that means. Uh-
1: <laughs> did did you did you do Git?
0: yes okay. <laughs> i do know what that means yeah so we did git <laughs> yes uh-huh uh-huh and then we worked in jupiter notebooks too oh good uh yeah <laughs> yeah you hear all this stuff i'm saying uh yeah. so what i didn't know was okay so there's like an online way to use git and then there's like a local way to use git is this how this works because I, so, I got a little bit confused about that. And we had to... So I'm basically going to make you reteach me everything I didn't understand about this. Because we had to download <laughs> Anaconda 2, which was like this thing that runs Python. So I felt like there were a lot of open windows that I didn't know what they were doing.
1: <laughs> so there are a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, um, uh-huh. <laughs> I will say, if you're curious about version control, our friends over at embedded.fm... Very recently, had an entire show on version control. Oh,
0: that's right, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And they tried to make it uh, platform agnostic, so they were really talking about Git, but they desperately tried to avoid using <laughs> Git specific terms.
0: Uh, <laughs> that's wonderful.
1: Like I think instead of push, it was shove. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so
0: <laughs> it, it, that was beautiful.
1: It was great, but uh, so that that gives you background on some version control. But so you can have a or you have a local copy of the Git repository on your machine. Uh-huh. That's all you have to have. Like, I have things that are on my machine and Git that are not on GitHub at
0: all. Okay, yeah.
1: So GitHub, and then there's also a GitLab service that's similar. They let you put your repository, a copy of your repository, on the internet so that others can clone it and fork it and that kind of thing. Okay. Um. You can have it public or private. So, for example, some of the projects that I've done uh, through my consulting are private projects because somebody else owns that material, mm-hmm. but it's in a online Git repository. So, customers and other developers that work with me can access it.
0: Gotcha. And you have to pay for those.
1: For the private ones, yes.
0: Right. But anybody can do the public GitHub, right?
1: Right. So, like, let's say you made a bunch of Jupyter Notebooks Uh, to go with your latest paper and you had them in a git repository on your machine you could then put a copy of that git repository online so others that read your paper could go clone it and repeat your analysis or do it differently
0: this is real interesting to me because i'm assuming and i actually have a note to ask you about this uh well okay no let's not get ahead of ourselves we'll get to that (laughs) we'll get back to that jupiter notebook business (laughs) um okay So, the first thing, though, that we talked about were these different shells, and we used the bash shell, which I knew the word bash shell, but I never knew that it was the born again shell. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But I remember using something else back in the day when I worked at the Severe Storms Lab. It was like seashell, something like that, right?
1: Yep. So, there's there's seashell. seashell. Yeah. Do you know what T T seashell stands for?
0: No, but I can't wait
1: it's tom's seashell oh my gosh uh, <laughs> <laughs> beautiful so yeah i i grew up well you know grew up haha um, <laughs> my early unix years were in seashell okay yeah and then i moved to t seashell and <laughs> then i moved to bash and now i use z shell
0: z shell
1: yes but there are a bunch of shells and everybody has their favorite and there are holy wars over why
0: why are they even different i guess (laughs) (laughs) different
1: shells slightly different functionality different ways to do things
0: i noticed Um, that this bash shell had pretty colors that my seashell never did but i didn't know that was just a long time ago and that's why
1: uh, you can take your CSHRC file and make your C shell real crazy.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Gotcha. Um, my Z shell has a ridiculously long ZSHRC file. And my prompt shows me what branch of a Git repository I'm on, what the status is, how many files are checked in, checked out, yada,
0: yada. Um, <laughs> so your prompt is like longer than the first line you type in? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. My prompt takes probably 30% of the screen. <laughs>
0: I don't ever imagine that I would be that busy that that just the dollar sign wouldn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's interesting. I didn't know that I'm what are these shells accessing
1: <laughs> well, so they the shells are the command interface to the operating system, right? okay, right so yeah. for example, you know ls to list files in a directory
0: mm-hmm. yep. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I could write my own sh- shell and instead of LS, you know, I could call it KA.
0: So, KA. <laughs> Why would you? It's do just that?
1: LS shifted one left on the keyboard.
0: Uh, I knew you had a reason. <laughs> um, I knew it. Because I
1: always put my hands down wrong on home row. So, <laughs> KA would actually work more often for me.
0: I knew I had to ask. Um, so, it's real weird to me to use that. And then, like, look in my GUI and see stuff change. You know what I mean? It was real strange. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because, like, when I worked on a Unix machine, there wasn't a lot of stuff that you would look at in a GUI like you would on the Windows machine I was using. You know, I'm like, oh, look, I can see this happening in in my Explorer window. And that was real creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I was tickling its insides. It was real freaky. (laughs) um so we did all that jazz and then we did git and i will say that my kid got sick last week so i did miss a couple of hours of the first part of the version control but luckily i caught up very quickly when i got back um so and then we used these jupyter notebooks and started writing little baby python things
1: so so before we move to jupyter notebooks i've got to know what do you think about git
0: I mean, I, I feel really bad, like I said, because I missed a couple of hours of that. So I really just came in on the end part of it. Um, I felt like there was so much to learn just about that. You know what I mean? It was this whole, oh, it was like a whole other thing that I feel like was shoved into an afternoon. And I should have gone to a class that was five weeks worth of stuff about it. Yeah, so... Like, I barely know even the first page of it (laughs) is what I felt like. And I felt like the commands were hard. (laughs) So when we've taught
1: Git before, Mm -hmm. uh, be it software carpentry or Unidata, uh, I've always said that Git has an interface that's designed by programmers for aliens.
0: (laughs) Well, that's interesting then. Uh, That you think that.
1: uh, The git is very powerful git does an amazing job git is the most user hostile (laughs) development tool that i know of
0: (laughs) so i mean the the point of it which everyone always shows that phd comic right when they do that is that like how everyone has to do it when they talk about version control oh yeah (laughs) because that's what that's what it is and so it's you know if you don't read jorge cham's phd comics it's the student getting back the revisions and then his final his final document is marked final real final this is the real final you know dot doc x or whatever
1: underscore two underscore (laughs) initials underscore yeah
0: exactly which is totally how my dissertation got written so i don't see how there's another way but that's what the point of git is is to stop that correct
1: yes (laughs) and you can go back any time in the history of the repository and restore that exact state
0: uh, i mean if you're backing it up right if you're if you're keeping it on your own machine you got to back up and stuff right
1: no so that that git actually git fundamentally it
0: out in the ah, okay
1: so the git repository if if you looked for hidden folders mm-hmm. when you make a git repository there's a folder called dot git
0: mm-hmm. and it holds
1: all the change sets so really, what happens is you commit, you know, like um, paper draft one. Every time that you change it and then commit those changes to the repository, it's just storing the actual changes to the original file. Okay. So fundamentally, only the original file is stored, and then you say, "I'm here now," and it applies all those changes up to that point, and that's what yeah. you see.
0: God, that's weird. <laughs> so uh... you can
1: you can go to any time in the history look at it, and then jump back to any other time or the present.
0: That's real interesting. Um, I feel like this is probably parts that I missed because my kid was barfing. Uh, (laughs) So I thought it was, so you make these changes, right? So we just had, uh, we just used Nano, which I used to use VI Editor, and they're like, don't use that. Use this Nano thing. It's a lot easier. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And all I remembered was I don't want to type RM star. That's, that's what I don't want to type. <laughs> <laughs> like the death command, right? Or RM R- R- minus RM R- is a little worse. Yeah, yeah. RM minus. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly. <laughs> so I was like, okay, all right, I got this. You know, it's real cute, that nano editor with all the instructions down at the bottom. Um, and so we just wrote things and then we would edit it and do the commits but it's like you have to like prep to commit right this was the part that i found not intuitive
1: (laughs) yeah so (laughs) without turning this into a show on git um, yes that's true (laughs) which you should go listen to again to embedded.fm um (laughs) the idea is so you've got a staging area and then you commit yeah so i do this a lot for work where let's say i change six files in the process of trying to address some issue. But I don't want to commit all six files at once because maybe in two of the files, I fixed a typo and in one of the files I fixed a bug. And then in one of the other files I did you know something else. So I would stage say the two files where I had the typo. So I would add those to my staging area and then I would commit. And just those two files would get committed with the commit message, like fixed a typo. Okay, And mm-hmm. then I would stage the file where I fixed the bug and commit fixed bug and then a good description. Mm-hmm. And so I can make multiple commits from my changes based on what I stage. Okay. Because you don't necessarily want to commit all of it as one block because remember, your commit points are points that you can easily roll back to. Right. So how, if in six months I want to leave the typo changes, but I fixed the bug incorrectly.
0: Mm-hmm then
1: I can just go back to that one commit that I messed up.
0: Ah. So here's a question, too, which, again, I think this is probably something I missed. So if you change that, does it change it in everything moving forward from that commit?
1: Yeah. Okay, so if I change a file and commit it, then does it stay changed?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Well, you change a file, you commit it, it stays changed. But say you Uh want to go back to a previous version so Mm -hmm. you fix that bug and you fix those typos right okay and then say you fix bug number two right now you want to go back and you like how bug number two got fixed but bug number one was wrong or
1: something like
0: that like how can you go back change bug number one and will that change be manifest in all the commits that were after that
1: So you could do something like that. It's called rewriting history, and it's a bad thing, and you shouldn't do it. (laughs)
0: Like Um, time travel. Awesome. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what
1: you should do is the reason you would roll back is to find at what point in time you messed up.
0: Right. Mm -hmm.
1: And then you would come back to the present, fix the bug the right way, and add a commit. Okay. And you can even reference that old commit. Say back in commit hash number whatever. I did a bad thing. And this fixes that, but you don't generally change history. There are a few times where if I'm developing, uh, you can use something called a rebase, which I didn't know how to use until I started working at Unidata. Um, it is a dangerous hammer, (laughs) but I might be working on, and I had one of these today. I was working on fixing a bug and, you know, my commit was like, okay, fix bug by doing this. And then I ran the test again on CI, and I was like, oh, I forgot to do something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, okay, fix thing I forgot to do. Oh, I didn't. But we have a bunch of checkers that check code style, like make sure the code is consistently formatted. Oh, okay. Oh, it didn't like that. I had a line that was too long. It didn't like that. So then I go back and commit, wrap long line. Well, now I have three commits, and two of them are worthless, like typo fix things that I don't deserve a commit, really. Right. Mm hmm. So with rebase, I can squash those back up into my old commit or combine two of them and leave one alone or change yeah. the commit message or okay, you that's... can do all these things and it gets you can get into bad places.
0: <laughs> awesome. I just need to know that that power exists, okay? Excellent. You can do
1: anything in git as long as you do it carefully and slowly.
0: So, I think that's real funny for this whole like point of version control and how that's a good thing, and it's kind of a housekeeping thing too, you know, except for the fact that you can just make commits with no comments whatsoever, right?
1: You can <laughs> people are animals and do that exactly um... like
0: I feel like the whole point of this thing is to make stuff you know very obvious what's happening i feel like that should be required like your comments need to be more than five characters or something like that
1: (laughs) well so i view it sort of like a lab notebook right uh your lab notebook should be descriptive it should be chronological and you shouldn't go back and edit what you did in the past you can but you shouldn't
0: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
1: uh and writing yourself useless messages in your lab notebook will be useless to your future self but if you write yourself a nice long message about how you fixed that one time the machine wouldn't do this one thing then it will be helpful in the future
0: yeah Mm -hmm. uh i think that's real funny and i need to know how many times you thank or chide your past self because the guy that taught the python part constantly said future self will thank you for this
1: (laughs) oh yeah um future (laughs) self will thank you you also find lots of stuff to hate past self for yeah <laughs> um my favorite thing is in so you can use get blame <laughs> and <laughs> so if we have a bug report and we go and find the line of the offending line of code we can use get blame and see who touched it last oh my uh, god <laughs> so you know who introduced the bug
0: <laughs> that's terrible <laughs> oh that's awesome okay so yeah it gets for real I feel like it's there was a real. lot of stuff that we did that, especially when we were like installing everything, and they're like, "Uh, we're not going to explain this. Just type this in."
1: <laughs> I, I definitely agree though with you that you said Git could have been like a whole course on its own. It definitely can. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. we've tried to cram it to an afternoon before when we've taught, and it's just real hard.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I mean that's that's basically what happened. So it was, mm-hmm. and then we got behind because of the not the best teacher in the morning. And so I think it got even more squished up than it usually was. So maybe that's why it was still a little confusing, I think.
1: Yeah. So, so it gets a good thing to know and shell commands. You already knew, but yeah. then you got to Python.
0: Yeah. So I want to hear about Python. So we downloaded this anaconda thing. Yeah. What's that?
1: So it is a distribution
0: okay
1: so i don't know if you download anaconda or miniconda
0: anaconda um
1: okay anaconda takes more disk space but that's
0: fine uh so they they gave us no options they said download this thing
1: (laughs) i I have a little presentation that i give when we teach that's called 10 minutes to conda that explains a lot of what conda is but the idea is in ye days of python (laughs) you had to install python and your system might have had python on it and it might have needed a certain python version so if you wanted to use a different python version for what you were doing then you had to do all kinds of linking magic uh to not mess up your path or your system wouldn't work and i've seen people get their path so messed up that you type ls and it says command not found oh uh, wow
0: okay
1: yeah so and then okay great now i want to install matplotlib and make some plots well, you get to go download the matplotlib source code and install it. Or I want to install NumPy. Great. That means you need a Fortran compiler. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it it used to be relatively painful. And once you got your stack of stuff built, you didn't want to touch or upgrade it because it could <laughs> mean that, you know, you're going to spend like a day getting everything working uh, again.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So Conda <laughs> has solved so many of these issues.
0: Oh, gotcha. Um,
1: with conda you can install packages from a repository where they guarantee things to work well together the company or you can use conda forge uh which is where a lot of community packages are um there you know we do all the compiling of things and stuff for you Mm -hmm. so it's just a ready to copy to your system and install thing and conda knows how to do all the copying and installing okay and it also provides you with environments did you use environments
0: Uh, I don't think so.
1: You never typed, like, conda activate?
0: Mm, Does not sound familiar.
1: Okay, so environments are my favorite thing, once I learned how to use them. And they are... You can think of each of them as a sandbox where you can play with a certain version of Python and packages. Okay. So... Like, I have to do some stuff that still relies on Python 2. Python 2 is going away in, like, a year. You should not still be using Python 2.
0: No, we use 3.
1: Right. Um, okay. But mostly talking to people, because there are people that are still writing new Python 2 code.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, but I... So I need a Python 2 environment. But I do all my development in Python 3. And then I do some stuff where I want to run like the nightly bleeding edge 3.7 betas. So now I need three versions of... Okay, well how am I going to do that? So in environments I can have one environment that has one version of Python and one set of packages, one environment that has another and it's easy to switch between them.
0: Okay.
1: And you can specify these environments with one little file that's called an environment YAML file and... So if I want to publish a paper, I could hand you my environment YAML file that specifies what version of all the packages I used, and you could exactly recreate my environment on your system in minutes.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that that saves a lot of time.
1: And with, like, teaching workshops for us where we install a bunch of domain-specific packages, Mm -hmm. it's great because we hand all the students the environment file, say, go type conda env create, it reads that file and makes an environment on their system that's the exact same as the one we're teaching from.
0: Wow. Which was probably like half a day at a workshop before.
1: Yeah, it took significant that's,
0: that's, time. <laughs> yeah, wow. Okay, that's awesome. No, so, the only thing I remember was running Jupyter Notebooks out of that, and that was it.
1: That's Yeah, that, I'm not surprised. That is that is yet another level of complexity.
0: Oh, yeah, because uh, we were still just kind of like, well, what is this thing? <laughs> Like, okay, we have to run it through that? Okay, that's all That's all we basically knew. And, you know, again, the poor teaching at that front end might have taken away that 30 minutes we are going to talk about that, you know? Yeah.
1: So. so, well, and it's hard. Like, doing software carpentry workshops is hard as a teacher and as a student. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. each of these topics is a day or two of material.
0: Oh, it's... Or uh, an entire class, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, <laughs> and having people come from all different backgrounds of, you know, of anything is in. How do I open this computer? To oh, well, I already know how to do this, so it's very interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, we could teach you know, we could definitely teach a whole day on messing with Conda and going around digging in the guts of it, how to mm-hmm. build your own packages, I and mean, we could definitely do that. Yeah, but you just don't have
0: time. Exactly, and you know, not the point of it. So,
1: right. Mm-hmm. So, you use Jupiter notebooks. Yeah. What do you think of notebooks?
0: Um, I liked it. Actually, uh, I liked the way that. Hmm. I like the fact that now on my computer I have this whole like log of the stuff that we did, and so right. even though you know he wasn't doing this, but as he was teaching i was annotating i was like oh markdown language got it
1: <laughs> you've heard those words before i have in every set of show notes we've done
0: exactly and i was like that's why that's why john writes all those octothorps everywhere which i kept throwing that word around <laughs> it was beautiful it doesn't land
1: with anybody under 30
0: <laughs> it doesn't it didn't land with anyone in that room it was amazing though <laughs> i kept saying it um and <laughs> so i kept commenting like i would just write comments on each little block of stuff that i knew i would want to remember so that was super great and then i just saved that and so i'm like oh because you know he would keep sort of reannotating his own text and so right. instead of doing that, I would just copy and paste and then, you know, write a comment and be like, okay, now you can change this part and it does this. And that was outrageously helpful. Nice. Yeah. I even, I had like my actual notebook out and was writing this and I was like, this is dumb. I don't have to do this. <laughs> I can comment in the code. <laughs> so yeah. that was kind of mind blowing, I will say.
1: Now, imagine if you did that with your data analysis.
0: I know. <laughs> so,
1: did you make any plots? Did they get to how to make plots?
0: We did. We actually used Matplotlib, which I also got really excited about. <laughs> and then I was like, man, there's all this data I here to use for fun, like already out there. And that was real exciting, too, right?
1: Well, would it blow your mind if I said that you can plot your PMAG data pretty easily?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I was obviously thinking about that the whole time, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not plotting the GDP of Argentina, which is what we were doing, but right. you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was awesome. Um, it was real awesome, and then looking at that Matplotlib was really cool because they're like, "Hey, here's this page in Matplotlib where you can take some data and do some really cool plots," and so. We went down that rabbit hole for a little while. They had to call us back in, and like, okay, focus. <laughs> <laughs> so that was real, really exciting.
1: Well, and one of my colleagues that you know is one of the core developers.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's
1: it's yeah. nice to exactly. nice to see it getting used.
0: I was throwing around some names a lot during this. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this guy that uh, started Software Carpentry. I've interviewed him. <laughs> 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 it was pretty funny. <laughs> um Mark Loersweiler says hi by the way. <laughs> ah hi Mark uh so yeah, it was uh that part was really exciting. It was really well, cool. exciting mm-hmm. so
1: what uh, so you hadn't written a line of Python code before the workshop, right
0: Correct, Not at all.
1: What do you think about Python as a language?
0: I mean, so I have a I took a class in Fortran ninety five right and i had some small amount of c experience from my time working at the lab and i liked it it was different though it was a lot different than you know like the if then loops and fortran and stuff so, yeah i mean and it's hard no to... variable
1: definitions
0: yes yep that was weird <laughs> <laughs> that was weird. I think that if I were going to use it, it seems pretty intuitive. And I don't know if you feel this way. I, I, it's just my small amount of understanding. I, I feel like that maybe the first language you learn feels like the most intuitive to you. Like, does that change the more software languages you learn to program in or what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Cause, cause, I mean, The first I, language
1: I learned is not the most intuitive.
0: Well, yeah, that's what I mean. So I'm like, well, I used Fortran, you know, for an entire year. So I felt like I used it a lot. And so to me, that's still like, whoa, this doesn't look like Fortran. <laughs> and there was lots of jokes going on in the room by the old people about Fortran. And I tried to just, you know play it cool like i wasn't old but
1: (laughs) well you know it's it's like i say you can write fortran in any language if you try hard enough so it's not a good thing
0: i use that joke um because they were asking like what would you use this then and i said well there's you know one pmag software written in python but my buddy said this about it (laughs) so yeah that's uh that's what i'd heard and i could see you know, looking at that source code for that software because it's all written out in um, the book, I can see what you mean by that now. After using Python just for a day, that's like, yeah, oh, it's okay. That's not really how that's supposed to be done in Python.
1: Yeah, and and it still works, but there are Pythonic and non-Pythonic ways to do everything. And right. here's the wonderful thing about Python: no matter how long you've done it, you're never good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I guess that's a wonderful thing to tell a beginner, but... <laughs> like
1: you always get better, but no matter how long you've done it, you will never... Well, if you look back at code that you wrote six months ago and go, this is great, then you're not learning.
0: Ah, mm-hmm. gotcha.
1: Um, I mean, just today, you know, I write Python professionally, and just today I had to call a colleague into my office looking at another code base and say, I've stared at this for an hour. And I cannot figure out for the life of me what is happening.
0: Oh, wow. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That's interesting.
1: (laughs) So no matter what you write or how long you write it, there's always going to be somebody that does it differently or in a more Pythonic way or in a just totally different design pattern that you've never seen. Yeah.
0: So how long fortran was around was 77 the first fortran
1: uh i think there was fortran in the 60s
0: okay so fortran survived a long time
1: and and it's still being actively developed oh really oh yeah there are new releases of fortran wow uh fortran i think it was 17 added objects and some other things so yeah fortran's been around um so actually, I actually just looked it up. The The first approved release of Fortran was 57. So
0: 57. Yeah. Wow. So when did Python start becoming a real thing?
1: Uh, okay, that's a tricky question.
0: <laughs>
1: I would say it started becoming a real thing about
0: 2005-ish. Okay.
1: That's when it started getting widespread adoption. Okay. Uh, I had heard about Python when i was in grade school
0: no those Uh, are snakes
1: (laughs) so python the the first release of python was in
0: 1991 wow
1: okay um and actually just this past july uh guido van Rossum, the bdfl or benevolent dictator for life (laughs) of python who started it uh stepped down as the leader oh wow yep can you do Uh, that oh yeah so uh python's been around for quite a while but i would say the adoption started kicking up about 2005 or so and then in the last few years it's just taken off with all the machine learning rage
0: because i mean fortran was always sort of the science version right i mean i guess c2 c and c plus plus yeah yeah um so is python i mean it's overtaking everything right
1: um, for some applications, yeah. I, I think it's becoming a very popular language. There's still a lot of C and C++ out there. Okay. And people will continue to write new C and C++ because for some things it's the right hammer.
0: Okay.
1: Um. There's still some Fortran being written. I would argue that that's not necessarily the most up-to-date hammer to use.
0: <laughs>
1: but there's nothing wrong with it. Um. Let's see. I would say the other big one really is Java. Java and JavaScript are eating the world.
0: But if, is that just that's just web stuff though, right? Like science stuff is all Uh,
1: you know the IDV, the integrated data viewer? Mhm. It's written in Java. Okay. So, yep, there's you can use any language for just about anything, but I think there's some languages that are really well suited to certain tasks. Python okay. is really well suited to data wrangling.
0: Okay. Java is really well suited for data output visualization and stuff.
1: It's really suited for fast viz, yeah. Ah, okay. Like d3.js is what all those cool interactive web graphics are made with. Right, yeah. And it's amazing.
0: Yep. All the stuff that Mac wouldn't let you look at because it wouldn't run Java correctly, yeah.
1: (laughs) But you have to write Java, which is not my favorite language. Hmm. Uh, Some people love it. It's not my thing
0: interesting that's interesting because these software carpentry they have an r workshop as well
1: yeah and i know a lot of people love r i tried r several times i even bought a couple books on it i just don't like the syntax
0: Uh, see this is really interesting that's very interesting to me and i have yet
1: to find something that python can't do with the syntax that i find more intuitive
0: You see, in this two-day class, you know, you do just these real simple things. So it's hard to see the value of one over the other when you're just doing these, you know, learning to walk tasks. You know what I mean?
1: Well, and so here's where I think... You remember how when your magnetometer was having all the problems a couple years ago, and once you got not scared to take the covers off and start messing with stuff? Yeah. So... (laughs) As a programmer, you test drive stuff all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, like when Go came out, I, don't, I... I don't know what that is. Uh, so Go's <laughs> another programming language. It was a Google project. Oh, uh, okay. One of the Kernighan and Ritchie authors helped Google. Uh, Go was going to be C, but with things that he didn't like about C changed. Ah, gotcha. Uh, and Go still actively used in some places. I, I got an intro book from the library, and spent a couple days just learning some go. I don't write anything in go. I probably couldn't sit down and type valid go right now because I don't remember the syntax, but it was a newish language. So I just kicked the tires. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there was a new database technology last week that I was curious about. So I sat down one afternoon, spent two hours just setting a database up, shoving some data in and out of it, seeing how fast I could do it, uh, so like with r it's one of those things where i kicked the tires on it and said this is great for some applications but not for what i do and moved on
0: yeah interesting i feel like a lot of statistical analysis happens in r or people that use r that's what they do
1: yes and i'm not saying r is a bad language i'm saying it's not useful for what i do necessarily right
0: right yeah no exactly um Cause that's, uh, I made my grad student, one of my grad students, I try to make all of them, but not all of them comply, uh, (laughs) take statistics and it was the statistics class, the undergrad statistics class here. Well, you know, it's a slash listed course with grad students. Um, he had them learn R and so most of their homework and their big project and everything was done using R. And I think my grad student hated me more than anything, Although I'm hoping in a year from now, he will come back and, and, you know, say, oh, you were right, sensei. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Well, and it gets easier too, you know, once you've learned a couple of languages, you've learned a compiled language, you've learned an interpreted language, uh, then it gets to where you need to learn a different language to do something. And you're like, okay, so I need a function pointer. How do I get a function pointer in this language? Okay. Or I I need an, I, I need an if else block. What's the syntax for an if else block in this language?
0: Okay, so that does translate then. That was another one of my questions I actually had written down to ask you was, you know, I know the word do loop, you know, or for loops or whatever. Like, once you get to know a couple of them, does it get easier to pick it up in other languages?
1: Yeah, so for loops and while loops.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Python has them, C has them. Mm-hmm. Most languages have some construct of for and while loops.
0: Okay.
1: Um, but, you know one of the languages that i deal with on microcontrollers instead of for or while it's repeat
0: okay
1: uh, it does the exact same thing so i knew okay i need something that's like a while loop whip open language reference guide oh repeat i bet that's like a while. yep okay here's the syntax done
0: gotcha okay so yeah it
1: once you get the general patterns down it's much easier to switch around languages
0: okay gotcha um, I will say, uh, the most important thing that came out of this was that my friend and I, who took the class, and were sitting next to each other, <laughs> we learned the random choice function. <laughs> right. And played rock, paper, scissors with it. <laughs> <laughs> So that was real exciting. So we made a list of rock, paper, or scissors, and then it would randomly pull something from that list. And so, yeah, that's what... So we just copied that into another Jupyter notebook and had that open also. <laughs> and would, right. <laughs> and would stop and play that every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. And then we also both built um, random choice dinner generators. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
1: nice (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) for and listed you know all of our favorite restaurants and takeout places and so we did that too so it was actually quite you know it's quite the productive week
1: (laughs) (laughs) so are you going to use python in your research
0: i mean i want to i guess i'd really like to i mean it's it's tiny it's very baby step but it's like i want to plot a ziderfeld that seems like something i should be able to do (laughs)
1: that's perfect
0: yeah like the data is real tiny it's not a ton of stuff it seems like something i should be able to do
1: and you know it's gonna take like a day
0: well i don't know if it'd take me a day but (laughs) and (laughs) and then
1: in six months it would take four hours and then in 12 months it would take two hours yeah next year sometime it's gonna take 30 minutes
0: exactly because there's actually two different things happening in the Zyderfeld plots that we do. So my PMAG data that comes out is a declination and inclination for this vector that is the magnetization of a rock, right? So it's a vector, it's 3D, but the diagrams, the Zyderfeld diagrams named after Zeiderfeld, obviously, uh, they're orthogonal projection plots is what they really are. Um, So it shows you declination. But the inclination is tied to that declination. And so the inclination's only an apparent inclination. It's not real because right. it's a 3D thing getting smushed onto this two D axis. So I'd really like to make an orthogonal projection diagram of that data.
1: Well, you know, the first step is can you make a plot of like total magnetic moment for each stage to see it decreasing? Yeah. And then yeah, make exactly. it more and more complicated.
0: Because that, oh, that's a good call. I hadn't thought about starting that easy, but that's exactly what I need. Because that's, that's it. at the end of the day, we wound up pulling some data and using matplotlib to just make, you know, just make some really easy XY charts and change the color and change them from solid lines to dash lines. That was real exciting. <laughs> uh, so, yeah.
1: So I'm going to call out uh, Professor Kevin Gobert of Valpo here, uh, make him feel old. When he was my (laughs) TA at OU, uh, my first Python project was plotting a Kohler curve for a Meteorology 2 lab.
0: Oh, there you go. It's
1: (laughs) dead simple. And most people did it in Excel and they would take that. And I was like, you know, no, I want to learn Python. And Kevin knows Python. So I sit down and I was like, Kevin, can you help me make a Kohler curve in Python? And he awesome. did, and it. I mean, it's a dead simple equation. It's a simple two D plot, but Great. it was doing something, <laughs> yes. and then I kept doing more and more ambitious and complicated things. And now I look back at you know something that I spent half a summer on, uh, the year that I learned Python. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I can do that in about a day now.
0: <laughs> yeah. See, and I know that you always say you know, if you want to learn a language, you have to have this problem first to work on it. And I think that turns, it, it, it is true. It's a hundred percent true, but it also might be a stumbling block for people that are like, but I don't have a problem, you know, and I just want to learn this language. And so I think that that's kind of a cool thing going back to GitHub. Cause you can just find somebody else's problem now. That's really cool.
1: Well, and if somebody says i don't have a problem i say you're not thinking hard enough
0: yeah that's probably true too like
1: it doesn't have to be a complicated scientific problem
0: yeah it that's, can be that's true.
1: that you know a patch of your grass is dying so you make a note of every time you water and you plot the watering interval and how bad it looks or something against yeah, each okay. other uh there you, go. you know one room in your house is cold so you write down the temperature every time you go in and make a plot you've got a problem somewhere
0: gotcha gotcha my cat keeps barfing on the third step versus the second step should i graph that versus time to see (laughs) there you go i think i'll stick with my magnetization one but that one actually might be interesting too i mean i've
1: plotted some pretty stupid stuff over time just because like i want to try out how to do this thing so what's the most absurd data set we can collect that's awesome
0: I'm sure my cat barfing on which step is not the most absurd data set that you could collect. <laughs>
1: um, one of the more interesting ones was, I want some, some interesting time series data to learn filtering and things on. Let's go buy an old police radar, hack it, convert it, and then take a Doppler signature of my wife running down the hallway.
0: Uh, beautiful.
1: That one's rather absurd. but
0: That's cool. Then you use that police radar to measure precipitation, too. Yep.
1: and it was a great way to learn okay this is how i do filtering on time series data uh
0: that's awesome yeah that's true you just kind of have to put in the put in the grunt hours for it as with anything make it fun yeah Mm -hmm. that's where those matplotlib that repository of like stuff you can plot that looked so fun like i immediately bookmarked that and was like yes yes i'm going to do this (laughs) (laughs) so now i have a whole uh, pinterest board about python I don't Excellent. know how many of those exist, yeah. <laughs> but that was real exciting. Um, So, yeah, the rock, paper, scissors thing, I felt real accomplished because clearly that was not anything that he told us to do. <laughs> so, right. So it's like that one little, you know, you can follow along all day with a workshop, whatever, but that one little thing, because we actually didn't get to do any of the, like, break out and do this for 30 minutes because of that, the snafu with the teacher right. on the first part. So our whole two days got compressed and so the most we he would say was like okay well we've got five minutes here for you to catch up so in the catch-up time we were already caught up so that's where we built our our fast food choice generator (laughs)
1: there you go next (laughs) step world domination
0: exactly (laughs) it was so great (laughs) so yeah um it was real fun that was definitely the the thing we used the most was the random choice that was real real exciting
1: well i look forward to seeing you start applying this to your data
0: oh homework jeez it's only the first week man (laughs) (laughs) uh well i will start doing that after i get done watching this awesome youtube video uh for our fun paper this week
1: Yeah, so it's time for Fun Paper Friday!
0: Yay! (laughs) I can't stop laughing about this paper. I'm sorry.
1: So, here's, you know, you could probably email the authors and get some data here uh, to play with.
0: Probably true. I'm totally going to do that.
1: So, uh, Hurricane Induced Selection on the Morphology of an Island Lizard by Donahue et al.
0: (laughs) That title does not do it justice. So, the,
1: the rough outline of this paper goes something like We were surveying a certain type of lizard on some islands.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We finished a few days before Hurricanes Irma and then Maria hit the islands. We went back and surveyed and found that the lizards that survived the hurricanes had bigger toes and smaller forearms,
0: smaller thigh bones.
1: Thigh bones, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Now
1: we're going to do some inference on how the hurricane could be influencing natural selection of lizards that can hang on better.
0: Exactly. And so why I'm laughing <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with any of that. <laughs> um, I mean, this is a really interesting a really interesting paper and I have a, a massive love of annuls because this is the little lizard they're using or these little annuls. I had anoles. I had an annul that lived for like eight years, which is outrageous. <laughs> just so you know, oh, wow. his name, his name was zip. I actually had a little funeral for him. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> uh, and this is really cool because they think that, you know, these major, this is really interesting because it's very much like geology too. Is that, is evolution influenced by catastrophic events, essentially? And so in geology, you know, we have catastrophism, which is the idea that, you know, these big catastrophic events are what gets recorded mostly in the rock record. Or is it uniformitarianism, which is like the slow everyday stuff? turns out it's probably a mixture of both. That's probably the answer here. But also, you know, which has more of an impact, so to speak. And so they're <laughs> saying, yeah, <laughs> that uh, in biology, I never really thought of it on this kind of short timescale, that these events could, you know, select individuals with certain features. And then moving forward, that's what you get. And the reason that toe pads and <laughs> thigh length <laughs> are a thing it's because in a hurricane, these poor little lizards have to hang on to things or they'll blow away and die.
1: Yeah. So the bigger toe pads help them grab on and provide a greater uh, resistance to getting blown off the limb. And the smaller frame helps them have less of a cross-sectional area to the wind.
0: Right. <laughs> and so where do the legs come in? Because this is the part that they didn't really understand <laughs> and... I think the experimental setup that they concocted answers the question of the legs, but I'm gonna let you describe that methods because I know that's what you love. And this picture, um, which is amazing.
1: <laughs> okay, so I didn't read the methods section of the paper. It's a separate document. Oh no, 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 no. Um, yeah, but there's let this me <laughs> looking at the picture give you what I think the methods section would sound like, and then we'll talk about what it really is. <laughs> okay, great. Um Okay, so there is a high-volume consumer-grade air blower (laughs) aimed across an anemometer on a polyvinyl chloride support. Uh, The lizard was hanging off of another polyvinyl chloride support backed by a padded net with a high-speed camera.
0: Uh, What is the apparatus setting on? (laughs)
1: so it is a leaf blower that is painters taped to a wicker chair with the (laughs) anemometer painters taped to a piece of pvc and it's all set up on somebody's front porch
0: on their porch
1: (laughs) with the net supported by a piece of foam and an egg crate
0: these people are from harvard (laughs) (laughs) oh i missed the painter's tape but you're absolutely right (laughs) Exactly and there are also
1: a is. couple of uh, weightlifting weights on the chair. <laughs> helping they hold it down.
0: just holding it down. It's a leaf blower. Yep. <laughs> so they stuck these lizards, and I can laugh because they said that there was, I, I, there were no lizards that were harmed in this. <laughs> um, they stuck these little lizards on this little dowel rod. <laughs> and then they turned the leaf blower on And you know, timed how long it took them. (laughs)
1: And took high speed video of them (laughs) flying into High speed video of
0: them blowing in the wind. And so, where the leg length comes in, because it said they couldn't really figure out why that was a why that would be um, a significant, you know, thing. Why why is shorter femur length something that is preferential? in these lizards that survived. And it's because it is their little tails and their whole back starts to flap in the wind first. And so it's really the toe pads on their front two legs that they hold on with. And so it's the strength in their forearms and the toe pad, large toe pads on their front that matter and shorter femurs because their little legs flap out at 90 degrees from their body. And so the longer femured ones have more surface area and get blown off the little stems of grass and stuff quicker.
1: And how bad do you feel? I mean, this looked like it took tons of energy for them to hang on. And yeah. now I'm imagining a lizard trying to hang on for hours.
0: Exactly. Exactly. It was unbelievable. I mean, I had questions, too, about, well, you know, in this sampling, like, how, uh, you know, how old are these lizards? Maybe the ones with shorter femurs are just younger, But no, they said they counted for all that. So they were all adults and all that. And obviously, female lizards have a better chance of living because they're smaller. So that was a help, too. Sorry, guys.
1: (laughs) The the big moral of this paper was you really can get a paper in nature by taping a leaf blower to a wicker chair on your front porch.
0: (laughs) Oh. Oh, man uh so we'll post this little <laughs> this summary blog <laughs> about it too where the video lies and a picture of the experimental setup
1: <laughs> yeah and i mean science sometimes doesn't have to be big expensive apparatus you can exactly. do science with what's in your garage
0: you know these people already had that high speed camera <laughs> yep (laughs) clearly yeah clearly this is a butterfly net and you know the rest of the stuff there you go it's just a leaf blower and literally a wicker chair (laughs) Uh, this was cool and I mean that's a really big deal for figuring out you know some questions of evolution right I mean this is they don't have this those pictures obviously didn't make it make it into nature (laughs) but they're there in the methods section Um, But this is a really big deal for figuring out what kind of a big impact these things would have, because those were two huge hurricanes. And this all took place with these lizards that live on very specific islands in the Turks and Caicos. So it was a really small sampling area, so they feel like that they got, you know, all the, they covered all their bases there, and it was a really excellent, um, excellent science that could come out of, you know, that devastating hurricanes.
1: Well, my favorite, uh, so there's a blog post by Donahue about Mm -hmm. all of this work. Mm -hmm. Um, My favorite thing is we have more to look forward to because he says, we'll need to get lizards into a wind tunnel and more rigorously test different perch diameters, angles, and positions to fully understand all of the effects morphology has on survival in high wind.
0: (laughs) All these poor little lizards hanging on all different sizes of dowel rods. Poor little guys.
1: So, there will be a wind tunnel follow-up paper, it sounds like.
0: Oh, uh, oh that's great. Um, I will say that the little picture of tiny little no toll pads is super cute, if you love lizards like I do.
1: Yep. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yep. Uh, and I will say that I have also scurried around the Turks and Caicos and tried to catch these annals <laughs> on, on many different occasions, and they're real fast. So, it's impressive that they could catch enough to even have a study that's all i'm saying <laughs>
1: <laughs> well if you have your own data on how much wind speed you can hang on to a dowel rod in by taping a leaf blower to a wicker chair on your front porch or <laughs> any other similar aerial drag coefficient data please send that in to us shannon how can they get a hold of us
0: uh you can send that to us show at don't panic uh you can send your high speed lizard pictures uh <laughs> to us on twitter we're at don't panic geo i am at shannon Doolin. john is at geo underscore lehman um you can always talk about your experimental setup of your <laughs> anol wind tunnel <laughs> on our slack chat room uh we're on the software underground don't panic channel
1: and until next week remember don't panic
0: <laughs> it's not an exact science Any opinions,
1: findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.
0: I can't stop. Look at those pictures. I'm gonna make myself throw up. Oh god, hold on. Those high-speed pictures. God. Like right before he like, let's go.